This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Venezuela's opposition leader Juan Guaido is meeting with U.S. Vice President Mike Pence and various Latin American leaders today in Bogota, Colombia, to discuss the increasingly volatile situation in his country. Violence erupted over the weekend when President Nicolas Maduro blocked roads to prevent humanitarian aid from entering the country. Hundreds of protesters were injured and at least four people were killed in those clashes. And there are reports of defections by around 60 members of Maduro's National Guard. Maduro held his own pro-government event on Saturday and continued to deny that there is a crisis or a need for humanitarian aid in Venezuela. He claims this is part of a plot by the United States and some of their allies to remove him from power. Guaido now says that he wants countries supporting him to consider, quote, all options, end quote, to deal with Maduro. So what are the next steps? Dorothy Cronick joining me here in studio, assistant professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, and on the phone with Alejandro Velasco, associate professor of modern Latin America at New York University and author of the book Barrio Rising, Urban Political Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. Dorothy, great seeing you. Thanks, Thanks for having coming. me. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to have you with us. Appreciate it. So, I mean, Maduro keeps hanging on to this to this theme, Alejandro, that there's no crisis going on in this country. And it's amazing to me sitting back that there are still people seeing all of the video and seeing all of the accounts, Alejandro, that there are people still supporting him. Yeah, well, I think to some extent they're mutually enforcing narratives, right? So the support that he continues to enjoy, I think, in part is being fueled by um, the sense that um, you know this this long-held boogeyman that the United States is actually seeking to intervene in Venezuela is becoming an increasing likelihood. On the other hand, of course, that uh, you know that does not mitigate, and in fact, is making even worse the conditions on the ground, right? So the humanitarian crisis that, on the one hand, he denies, but I think over the last couple of weeks, he's taken a bit of a turn and to say that yes, there's a humanitarian crisis, but it's the fault actually of the United States and its sanctions that needs to be lifted, um, has lent a little bit of nuance to those claims. So all he he really needs is to have somebody to be able to blame. Um, unfortunately, I think the United States is doing everything in its power to. Um, you know, make that um, that you know that that blame uh, increasingly realistic. Dorothy. Yeah, well, I think the first thing to note when we're talking about support for Maduro within the country is that it is very low. I mean, as you noted, um, there are still certain people, there are still people, of course, who support the regime. And of course, many people, the majority, according to public opinion polls, who oppose U.S. military intervention. But this is not a regime that is uh, enjoys wide support, of course, within the country. And Maduro's efforts to um, deny the existence of an economic crisis or blame all the economic problems on the United States have not convinced the vast majority of the Venezuelans people that 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 is in fact the reality right that said um, you know as Alejandro mentioned um, his efforts Maduro's efforts to blame the economic crisis on intervention from the United States is um, gains more credibility as uh, the U.S. imposes sanctions and takes other actions to put pressure on the Venezuelan economy but sanctions are one thing, Dorothy. He's almost leading this into some sort of an assault by the United States military coming into Venezuela, which is, at least so far, has not even been close to an option at this point. 
I hope you're right about that. Um, I think I do, you know, if I had to put a probability on, you know, what's the likelihood that we see U.S. military troops on the ground in Venezuela, I think it's quite low, or, or Colombian troops for that matter. Right. That said, um, the saber rattling by Marco Rubio, by Trump, by Elliot Abrams, by Bolton, these overt threats and, and statements, for example, by Trump that um, if the Venezuelan military doesn't doesn't remove Maduro, they will lose everything, those kinds of threats and statements and the travel of Special Envoy Abrams to the Colombian border make Maduro's statements about the specter of U.S. military intervention more credible. Alejandro, your thoughts? Yeah, no, exactly right. I know over the weekend, Marco Rubio did a little bit of a tweet series of uh, to post former dictators, um, including Gaddafi in Libya, which, of course, other people have um, come out to say is perhaps the dumbest thing that he has ever done. There's a Washington Post editorial who explicitly makes that point today. Um, because, number one, the Libyan example is, is not a successful example of yeah. regime change. But number two, it undermines actually the efforts on the part of some sectors in the opposition to be able to pry out some carrots to the stick of, um, uh, of trying to affect mass defections from the military. So if on one hand, you're you know, encouraging the military to try to defect, whether it be through amnesty or other kinds of moves, and then on the other hand, you're saying, but if you don't defect, we're going to you know, kill you. Um, this is your fate. Um, you know, that, makes the, you know, that undermines the, 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 the carrot part of the equation. 844-WHARTON is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y-21. So, Dorothy, this meeting is going to take place between Guaido and Mike Pence and, and other leaders of, of that region. What should we expect that, that probably would be discussed in this type of a meeting today? Well, I think the important context for the meeting is what happened this weekend, right? So this weekend was yet another moment when Guaido and the U.S. and others in the international community hoped that the Venezuelan military would defect and remove Maduro. The first such moment was a month ago when Guaido took the oath of office as interim president, declaring that Maduro had vacated the presidency. There's been a lot of reporting since then suggesting that Guaido and um, allies in the United States and elsewhere expected that that January 23rd oath of office over a month ago now would lead to a very rapid defection of the military within 24 hours. That obviously did not happen. And hopes were high also for this weekend that this there was a Live Aid concert sponsored by Richard Branson on the Colombian side of the border and this kind of big showdown over the issue of bringing humanitarian aid into the country. There were hopes that this would lead to defection. Now, you mentioned in your uh, in your introduction that perhaps 60, 100 members of the National Guard of the Venezuelan military did defect and crossed over to the Colombian side of the border. But I can tell you 60 or 100 is not what Guaido sure. and the United States were hoping for. Need a lot more than that to, to be able to, to move forward. Now, now, obviously, Alejandro, the other story from uh, this past week was the fact that there is an actual blockade of roadways to prevent humanitarian aid from entering the country. And I guess a couple of trucks did get through, but w- at least one of them was basically torched so that all of the materials that were in the truck were basically destroyed. 
Yeah, that's right. Although the conditions under that of that torching remain a little bit unclear, and there was a lot of speculation as to you know what the you know what the actual um, you know spark that lit that fire was. Um, but even beyond that, of course, yes, the Venezuelan government not only blockaded um, previously these these major access points, but um, then deployed massive numbers of, of troops to stand guard on those bridges to prevent any additional aid from coming in. And of course, the way that they see it is that this is uh, and, and other organizations internationally, like for the International Red Cross, Caritas, and others, you know, local human rights or, or uh, humanitarian organizations have have rejected the way in which this aid has been really turned towards larger purposes, which is regime change. It sort of uh, belies the, the the purpose of humanitarian aid in, in other ventures. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's what happened. There was this violence. I would also just like to point out that the greater violence, actually, the, the deadlier violence, happened way in a different border, which is the border between uh, Brazil yeah. and and, um, and Venezuela, that's where you saw, um, you know, deaths by, uh, you know, uh, high caliber rifles deployed by the military, especially among indigenous uh, against indigenous populations, which have been clamoring for aid for a long time. Dorothy. Yeah, I'm glad that Alejandra mentioned the deaths in, in Cumaracapay. This is not near the Colombian border where there was this big concert and the big showdown and all the yeah. international media attention, but rather near the border with Brazil, where this indigenous community was trying to block the National Guard's effort to close the border with Brazil and trying to prevent the National Guard from blocking this humanitarian aid from coming in. And as Alejandro mentioned, two, um, two members of that community were tragically killed by the National Guard um, and just two more victims of, of this regime. What's, what's the expectation now uh, that and Dorothy, I mean, we've talked about this several times, and, and we've always kind of hoped that we would see kind of a, a corner turned in this process. And, and it doesn't feel like we are getting any closer to that right now. You're right. It doesn't feel that way. I mean, I think in thinking about what's next, right, what are the possible scenarios? So one possible scenario is some sort of military intervention. As you yeah. noted, I think that's quite unlikely, either by U.S. or Colombian troops, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out completely. I think, you know, we've talked before in the past about why that could be so damaging and problematic. And, you know, some people say, well, the Venezuelan military would be no match for the U.S. military or the Colombian military. That may be true, but there are many non-state armed groups in Venezuela that could lead to a protracted and deadly conflict. Um, even if Maduro is removed quickly, right, then you have this situation where perhaps the Venezuelan army is is destroyed, um, and and where does that leave the country? So that's you know I think is a um, I'm not optimistic about that possible scenario. Um, then there's you know the scenario that that we're I think many people are hoping for is that the the kind of the threat of military intervention or other types of international or domestic pressure lead the Venezuelan military to say, okay, this is enough and we need yeah. a political transition. Um, and I think, you know, in the U.S. government's attempts to foment that, they have to walk this very delicate, difficult line in which, on the one hand, they're trying to threaten military invention, intervention convincingly enough yeah. to scare the Venezuelan yeah. military into removing Maduro. But on the other hand, they they don't want to create the impression with the international community that this is actually on the table because that will rapidly erode international support for a transition and for this, you know, 
international effort to 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 get a political transition in Venezuela. So that's this kind of delicate dance of you want to threaten convincingly and convince the Venezuelan military, but not um, be so convincing that others uh, leave, leave this effort. Well, and, and Alejandro, I I think it's unique, you know, uh, with us sitting here in the United States of of looking what uh, at what is playing out here now. And the role that the Venezuelan military really does have, the potential impact that they really have on this entire process. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the military has now for a long time, years certainly, um, held significant amount of cards and, and basically much deciding power in terms of the future of Venezuela. In part, that's because Maduro has brought more and more of the military into the fold of his regime, you know, especially as it has faltered over the last four or five years. Um, and that's been done through either, you know, uh, providing illicit uh, you know, opportunities for illicit um, enrichment um, or just more direct, um, you know, ties to the inner. Uh, in the upper echelons of the government. That said, I think that the larger problem um, that Venezuela has, has faced going back 20 years, and this is not just the United States, I think it's the domestic opposition, is consistently underestimating um, either the strengths or the lengths to which the Maduro government recently and before that the Chavez government would go to not just remain in power, but also the, the strong basis of support, certainly before, that Chavez held. And so this idea, right, that you could, you know, all you need was a tiny little bit of a push, and then the entire sort of um, government would fall apart. That has, you know, long been a part of um, U.S. foreign policy rhetoric in terms of um, interventions abroad. And I think in the case of Venezuela, that would not just for the reasons that Dorothy mentioned, but more broadly, would undermine any medium-term governability that um, the opposition would uh, want to have. I'll just finally say this: there are alternatives. <laughs> you know, there are alternatives to this escalation. Um, the international contact group that's led by the European Union has strongly voiced their opposition to any kind of military intervention, and so they remain open to um, not a negotiation, uh, but basically a, a peaceful transition that allows Chavismo some role to play in a future, you know, Venezuela. And to the extent that you know uh, the opposition um, has to have that on the table, they need to be exerting. They need to have some pressure exerted to that effect as well. Dorothy. Yeah, I mean, I, I share Alejandro's view that a, a political transition that doesn't erase Chavismo from the face of the earth or from the face of the Venezuelan political landscape may end up being key here. And, you know, I think it, it sounds sometimes morally abhorrent. People say, how could you allow these murderers to participate in a democratic political system? And they, yeah. the regime has been quite murderous and extrajudicial killings went up a lot under Maduro. Um, but I think if you look at examples of political transitions in Latin America and elsewhere, um, there are a lot of examples, there are a lot of cases in which an outgoing murderous regime was allowed to retain some power within the new government, yeah. and then that eventually does lead to an effective democratic transition. Chile, for example, right? This is the case of Augusto Pinochet, who within six weeks of taking power in 1973 murdered 1,500 Chileans and went on to kill thousands more. Um, and, and then, you know, in the political transition in 1989-1990, after 17 years of this brutal regime, is allowed to remain as commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Yeah. Is that savory? Do we love that from an ethical perspective? No. Is that immediate justice? No, but it did allow Chile to reclaim its democracy. Which is interesting because when you when you get into a, a situation similar to this, uh, one of the things I, I was thinking about as you were both talking about it is... 
even if Maduro is taken out of power and he is no longer the president uh, of Venezuela, there are still going to be quite a few people that will be his supporters that will be within that country that will be looking to try and have some sort of influence within Venezuela, which could be a detriment to Mr. Guaido if, in fact, he is the, the next leader of the country. No, absolutely. And I think this goes to Dorothy's earlier point, which is absolutely, uh, you know, support for Maduro is is dwindling and, and getting lower, um, although some of the saber rattling is, is consolidating some of his staunchest basis of support. But that doesn't, especially among popular sectors, immediately translate into support for the opposition, which has done a terrible job over the last certainly 20 years, but even the last three to four years of doing significant amounts of outreach to say, you know, what they would do once they were actually in power. Um, and to the extent that this sort of rejection of Maduro, but not yet support for the opposition, could undermine, again, as you well mentioned, the possibilities for some sort of stable transition, that's really what should be you know, at the height of considerations for somebody like Guaido. Not what happens to get rid of Maduro, of course, that's important, but yeah. how to do that um, such that the next day does not leave us with an even uh, you know, worse crisis for both uh, you know, Venezuelans on the ground and then thinking ahead to you know to their future. Dorothy. Well, you know, Alejandro and I can can sit here and kind of dream about what kinds of political institutions we'd like to see take root sure. in Venezuela post Maduro, and yeah. I, I think that's an interesting and, and productive exercise. But you know, the reality is, as you mentioned, it doesn't seem like we're turning a corner here, and it doesn't seem like we're getting quickly to a post Maduro Venezuela, unfortunately. And so I think it's also important to think about um, well, what's the plan B if Maduro stays in power, right? And what is our what is the, the what do we see coming next in Venezuela? Venezuela if Maduro does stay in power. And I think one really important thing to think about there is um, the Venezuelan economy, which has already been devastated and now is further weakened by these very punitive U.S. sanctions that essentially cut the government off from international financial markets, make it very difficult for the government to make money selling oil. One thing I've been doing in trying to learn about this is, is, is reading about the cases, about other cases of this type of sanction, for example, Iraq in the 1990s. And right. that was an economy that was starting from a much better place. And even there, you see a significant increase in childhood malnutrition. You see families and kids really suffering. And so my question is, and, and I understand, you know, the moral um, argument of you, we, well, you don't negotiate with terrorists, and sure. this, right? And you yeah. don't, you don't pay Maduro and you don't fund a government um, that tortures and kills um, political prisoners. And, and I understand that. But I also think, you know, to your point about not turning a corner, um, there needs to be a plan B for how do we prevent a famine in Venezuela if we don't see the political transition that many are hoping for. Alejandro? Well, yes, I agree with everything Dorothy said, with one exception. I think that the, the lack of a plan B or the lack of a horizon beyond um, the, the ouster of Maduro is actually making more difficult the possibility to precisely imagine those alternatives, right? So, you know, if you don't have a horizon beyond just what you do tomorrow, then any kind of dreaming that you're going to be doing about the next day is also going to be constrained. So I think that there's a way and there's a role in which uh, you know, there's, a, there's a way by which actually speaking more concretely about what that plan B would look like, um, 
is not only necessary but urgent, precisely to break this sort of uh, you know significant um, degree of escalation as an only option that we've seen over the past few weeks. So, um, yeah, yeah, I certainly agree that we don't want to be utopian here as to the the possibilities, but I also think that um, that being a little bit um, you know uh, mindful of actually you know what would that transition look like um, is would be helpful to begin the process of actually making it real. Otherwise, the only thing that's on the table is greater escalation. As, as Dorothy mentioned. What now at this point, Alejandro, can an entity like the UN do? What role can they play to try and, and mitigate some of the problems? I think the UN's role is primarily around humanitarian aid, right? So one of the things that they have, you know, vocally come out against is again this sort of politicization of the aid that we've seen over the last um, week or two. And so, you know, they have networks in place, they have capacity in place to be able to actually provide humanitarian assistance, especially as um, Dorothy well mentioned, some of these sanctions begin um, to take effect and, and lead to an even more catastrophic social condition on the ground. So I think that's the UN's role, even beyond the issue issue of sort of uh, trying to alleviate the political crisis, which I don't think it's actually well equipped to do. I think that the larger issue in terms of the political crisis is going to come from two places. Number one, the European Union, and number two, Canada, which has taken a very strong role in supporting for now, um, you know, Guaido and the opposition and to some extent the U.S. role in this. Um, But whether it's going to be continued to support as some of this um, saber rattling grows louder um, will, I think, sort of mitigate against the possibility of, of, again, sort of having horizons that are beyond us. And the European Union, to the extent that it has also come actively and strongly against any kind of you know, further escalation, has another role to play, which is to, again, sort of bring, rein in the, the push towards escalation. Um, that, I think, is what's most absolutely necessary at this moment. Dorothy? Yeah, I mean, I share Alejandro's view about the role of the UN and the international community more broadly in kind of depoliticizing aid and, and, and offering aid in a way that the government, that the Maduro government perhaps would be able to accept. And that that is what I think is meant by being concrete about this plan B. It is, is it an oil for food program? Is it mm-hmm. multilateral aid that's not stamped with U.S. American flags, which you know might have a different tenor and allow the aid to actually get into the country? Um, and, but I, and I also see Charlie Hondra's view that there are other uh, international actors, perhaps not the United Nations, who could be pivotal in um, pushing for a transition that occurs by some means other than military confrontation. Like who? Who do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I share Alejandro's view that perhaps the EU, perhaps Canada, right, that yeah. these actors um, could be involved in. Again, I think the issue here is devil's in the details, right? What what does that transition look like? And yeah. are there are there players on either side, either on the government side or in the opposition, who would be willing to even consider something like a transition in which uh, elements of Chavismo, perhaps not Maduro himself, do retain control of some parts of the government. And I think getting that on the table will will depend on the international community. You mentioned about the sanctions, Dorothy, a, a little while ago, and and uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton had suggested new sanctions o- over the weekend. We've seen sanctions obviously have a, a significant impact on Venezuela, and with the economy as struggling as it is right now, how much farther could the U.S. actually go in terms of sanctions without, as you appropriately brought up a second ago, impacting kids and and families there in Venezuela, or I should say impact them more than they've already been impacted? Well, sadly, as absolutely abysmal as the state of the Venezuelan economy is, it, it can get worse is the reality. And, um, you know, last year, the 
Venezuela government spent about, or Venezuela as a whole spent about $12 billion on imports of goods. Yep. And what are our estimates of how much this current round, this current sanctions regime is going to cost the Venezuelan government? Estimates range from $4 billion, which is a third of that total goods import bill, to the U.S. government's estimate, which is probably an overestimate, but nevertheless, the official estimate is $11 billion, which is almost 100 yeah. percent of what the country spent on goods. And so, yes, I think you know it can get worse. And um, for all of the uh, hunger and malnutrition that we're already seeing in Venezuela, um, famine and deaths from malnutrition, I think, are a very... Um, a realistic scenario that we need to work to try to avert. Alondra? I completely agree. We have to avert that scenario, which is, I think, the, the far likelier one from all the scenarios that we're contemplating at the moment. Um, and the thing is that, historically speaking, exactly as Dorothy mentioned, there are examples of uh, sanctions regimes that do not actually proceed in the way that these have been implemented, which is that there are some, you know, there are escape clauses, that there are um, exceptions, especially for food, and those have not been on the table. And, and it's, it's baffling, actually. Um, why they're, you know, why this tremendous kind of push towards an all-or-nothing um, strategy, which is so short-termist and, in fact, relies on increasing the suffering of Venezuelans on the ground as a way to be able to, um, you know, to further uh, legitimize increasing action. That, you know, that that cannot be understood as as humanitarian assistance under any sort of guise, and we need to, I think, call that out very strongly. Thank you both for your time today, Dorothy. Great seeing you again. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you for your time on the phone, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.